God, we thank you for this day today. Um, we thank you for allowing us to set time aside to uh, sing songs of worship to you and to meditate on on those words. And um, thank you for Jasmine and um, her uh, yeah her voice and her conviction to write those and for allowing us to share in them. Um, thank you for allowing us to set time set time aside to uh, be with you in uh, in your word and uh, collectively just discussing. Um, where you would have us um, with this month and this topic. Um, we just pray for uh, our time today. Um, we pray for good discussion afterward. Uh, we pray for um, just all the th different things going on in the world. Um, allow us to continue to gather, um, whether it be near or far. So we just thank you for what you've provided for us, um, no matter what. Uh, we pray these things in your son's name. Amen. All right, so welcome everyone. Good morning to everyone that is tuning in. Uh, welcome back, um, Alethea, and if we have guests tuning in right now, welcome welcome back guests, or welcome for the first time maybe. Um, so once more, this month of August, we are talking about uh, blessings still. Uh, this month we're talking about what it means to receive blessings from God. So again, as I like to do, just to uh, quickly recap us and, and, and get us up to speed so that we don't forget, you know, the different things that we've been going over. Week one, uh, we refreshed, refreshed just in general what it means to be blessed. The prior months we talked about um, relationship with others and relationship with God in terms of um, blessing and sacrifice and, and these na uh, things of this nature. So uh, week one, we spent some just time refreshing what it means to be blessed and how just trivially, it's been accosted and um, dumbed down and simplified and used in ways which um, really don't do God justice. So that was week one. Uh, we talked about it being um, an outworking of God's grace rather than, you know, an act of chaos or something like that. A couple weeks ago in week number two, when we were here, we talked about the importance of relationship and communion with God as being central to receiving blessings. And we did some uh, study into some of the Old Testament um, forefathers in terms of their relationship with God, how they walked with God, how they were blessed because they walked with God, um, so on and so forth. We talked about everyone from Adam to Abraham to, to Jacob and, and people in between, how they walked closely with God and they were, they were blessed because of this and their faith um, were their faith rewarded them. So we talked about uh, people from the Old Testament, and uh, we have the relationship necessary to understand uh, the importance of that eternal blessing that we have just in, in communion and relationship with God. And it's the single most important blessing that we can uh, recognize and receive, um, and it's freely given. And then, of course, last week in week three, for those of you that uh, were with us and those of you that uh, we're not. Week three, we talked about the unpopular story of receiving blessings as Christians, as Christ's disciples. Um, and we talked about it uh, being the less desirable story, um, but the true story nonetheless, and that receiving blessings means you receive suffering. That's part of the blessing that you received. And we talked about it uh, and around it um, a lot, and it was, we had some good discussion afterward. Suffering is a blessing, and we should we should reshape the way we think about suffering, how we think about suffering in our lives, and how it manifests differently in each of us, and how we can use the suffering, how it could motivate us as um, good 
people for Christ, good soldiers for Christ, producing good works for him and relationships for him and glorifying him and, and so on and so forth, so forth, how it makes us partners with him when we embrace it and we suffer well, if you will. We should be challenging ourselves to do that, to suffer well. Um, some of you, I don't think I shared this story last week, but um, I know I've shared it once before, maybe in like a cell group or something, but I had an old coworker. He was kind of above me, but whatever. I consider him a coworker. Um, and this was years ago, a couple years ago now, but this old coworker was diagnosed with brain cancer. And it was really sad. He was a really like beloved guy at the company I was at, really positive guy, and he was diagnosed with brain cancer. And within six months of that diagnosis, this man eventually died. Of course, it, it was very quick, as it is with brain cancer. Um, but the entire time this man, you know, lived his remaining months and weeks and days, uh, if you look at his social media account, and I'm kind of glad it still, like, exists, like it wasn't deleted or something, the entire time this guy suffered well, and he was a believer, and he always pointed to the hope he had in Christ, and it doesn't matter the, the, you know, the treatment he just got or the appointment he just had or the bad news that he continued to get for six months, you know, and it was rapid and he eventually died. This guy suffered well, pointing others to God and to Christ and sharing his hope and not being, you know, beaten down by his condition and his suffering and his circumstances. And so I always think about this guy when we talk about suffering and suffering well because it was a, it was a, a real close example for me in terms of how we should do that and we should do it um, with joy and with, um, with, with hope, continued hope. So anyways, I just wanted to share that story. I don't think I shared it last week. Um, to suffer with grace and humility and to keep in mind the larger picture as God's people. Um, yeah, receive it, as, receive it as the apostles received it. We talked a lot about Paul last week um, and receive it as, of course, Christ received it. They, he was only able to receive his suffering because he saw Christ going through the same thing and so he was looking forward to Christ and he knew that um, there was a bigger picture. So, anyways... That was week number three. Talked about suffering in terms of receiving blessing, and that's the, the true story and the unpopular story as believers. So this week, I want to sort of unpack a throwaway comment I think I made in week number one. Uh, and it's, uh, it's a topic uh, revolving around this, this concept of how we receive God's blessing that's pretty much impossible to avoid when you're exploring it, when you're asking yourself the questions, when you're looking you're looking at what's being put out there in the world in terms of how should we receive God's blessings, how should I conduct myself, so on and so forth. So it's a topic that is um, hard to avoid, but I wanted to, I wanted to l make sure we were at certain points along the way before I um, tackled it. And uh, I wanted to make sure I laid groundwork in terms of suffering because the concept of suffering is very much opposite of what this topic this week is going to be about. Um, so the comment, without further ado, the jab I made <laughs> uh, in week one was in reference to prosperity teachers or prosperity theology. So when talking about what it means to receive God's blessing, it's, it's very hard to get around this pervasive and false teaching that exists in the world, for sure, the world, but particularly here in America. It's a prominent teaching um, in, in Christendom and one that has, you know, 
has nefarious roots planted and continues to thrive and continues to grow and continues to amass followings and, and you know, lift the wrong people up and so on and so forth. So this week I want to spend some time unpacking the false gospel that exists within prosperity teaching. Because prosperity theology would lead you to completely unfounded, uh, un, un, unbiblical, anti-God and pro-man conclusions on what it means to receive uh, blessing. So that's what this week's going to be about. So if you'll indulge me, I want to sort of come at it from the, the anti, what it means to receive blessings. What I mean is, here's what it doesn't look like. <laughs> Last week we talked about suffering as being central to what it does look like. Um, but So keep that in mind, I guess. Keep that in mind as we as we you know, unpack some of this stuff and as we go into our cell groups and discussion, um, here's what it does look like. Here's the true story. You can expect this. You can expect suffering. Here's what Christ did. Here's what his disciples and the early church did and, and so on and so forth. And here's where we're at today. And this is what it doesn't look like. So indulge me, if you will, um, and keep those things in mind. So just some, some history that's important to know as we begin this discussion on um, prosperity teaching and, and the false teaching that exists within it. What is it? What is prosperity theology? What does it teach? To put it briefly, as I did a few weeks ago, it's the belief that if you just have enough faith, if you have enough positive thinking, positive thoughts, uh, if you put enough good vibes out there, if you speak your desires into existence, God will shower you with reward and prosperity. That is, in a nutshell, in one sentence, what it means, what prosperity teaching would um, put out there and have you believe. And it's taken on many names in the last hundred or so years. It, it you know, first came into being, I guess, if you will, um, in the late 1800s. So basically its entire existence exists in the, ninth, in the 20th century. I mix that up all the time. The 20th century, so the 1900s. <laughs> um, and it's taken on many names, and you might recognize them, some of them. It's known as prosperity theology. It's known as the health and wealth gospel. It's known as the success gospel, seed faith, positive confession theology, name it and claim it gospel, um, and so forth and so on. It has many different names, but just in hearing some of them, if you have, you know, if the alarm bells are going off and when you hear those names, name it and claim it and, and things like that, and if your, your radars are going off, uh, good on you. <laughs> that means that you're, you're well calibrated enough to know that that sounds kind of funky. So good on you. Um, no matter the name that's used, though, uh, the essence of the message is basically the same. And, and again, to put it plainly, it teaches that God wants believers to be physically healthy, material, materially wealthy, and personally happy. You know, whatever that means. We don't know what that means. That's a completely subjective thing. Physically healthy, materially, materially wealthy, and happy. And those are subjective things. Uh, there's a guy named Robert Tilton. He's one of its biggest advocates and spokespeople. And he's quoted as saying that, uh, that he believes it's the will of God for all people to gain wealth. And he tries to spin it by saying that God grants everyone the power to get it, to attain it, to achieve it. Teachers like him, like Tilton, encourage their followers to, to pray for and even demand material blessing from 
God, and, and they're right in doing so, and they're justified in doing so. They can demand a certain thing from God. This is completely anti, obviously, from the get-go, what scripture would have you believe. Uh, this gospel's roots are, as I said, you know, are, are strongly here in America, and its roots are drawn from what's known as new thought philosophy, which is basically uh, a set of systems or, or a set of beliefs that having to do with metaphysics, so like the abstract um, ab abstract theories of like consciousness, like what it means to be um, and to exist. Uh, it's, it's rooted in uh, beliefs of positive thinking, the laws of attraction, uh, healing and life force and creative visualization and, and personal power and all these other weird types of, uh, frankly, mysticism. These are all these are all contributing um, ideologies in this new thought philosophy that prosperity, uh, the prosperity gospel comes out of. Uh, to put it in the realm of pop culture, if, if you're like already sort of unfamiliar with it and stuff, um, have you ever heard of the book The Secret? It's a really popular book uh, still today. Um, it was a really popular book, I think in like maybe the early 2000s or something. I think I was in like middle school or so when it uh, really gained popularity. Um, and it sort of launched into another stratosphere when it was like making the Oprah rounds. You know, she has her, her book thing that she does. Uh, she was championing it, championing it. And it's now in the year 2020, this book, The Secret, is now being made into even a major motion picture with Katie Holmes for all you Dawson's Creek lovers, uh, and other actors that you recognize from that one thing. Uh, it's one of those types. Uh, it's, my point is, it's still relevant today. This new thought, prosperity teaching isn't something that's old or, you know, outdated or whatever. It still thrives today in certain formats, you know. It still has its you know, popular teachers and charismatic leaders, and it's still uh, um, is pervasive in pop culture, in, in this book and in this movie. So, uh, so yeah, it's, it, it's the whole premise of, of that book, um, Prosperity Teaching, is the whole premise and backdrop that conceptualize your reality, uh, your truth, and it will, it will be, it will come into existence. I had a former boss who, that was his whole thing. Um, so it was, it was interesting to navigate that relationship with him. But again, my point is that this is still a relevant thing today. Um, so I felt, I felt it's important to, to talk about it. One, because it's hard, not to, uh, it's hard not to avoid it, or it is hard to avoid it when we're, we're talking about what it means to receive. And two, because it's still 100% relevant today. So, uh, uh, but it took its first, it took its first like, mega popular turn in the 50s or so, like the mid-1900s, when televangelists came into being into, you know, really popular. Um, many scholars recognize this guy, Kenneth Hagin, as one of the patriarch evangelists of the prosperity gospel, as well as the father of what, what is known as the word of faith movement. Um, and more than, more than any other, you know, factor contributing, this word of faith movement that this guy started that was rooted in, you know, new thought philosophy and prosperity teaching, uh, it was the vehicle responsible for really pushing this thing into the next um, stratosphere and, and Christian circles and um, the lives of believers and new believers, um, more importantly, across the United States in the 20th century. 
<clears throat> and in like, so again, remember, this is history, we're laying groundwork. In like the 60s, um, he started to establish and really put words, uh, you know, put, put form to this, this teaching. Um, and he established, it, established his ministry to cultivate its, its faulty doctrines, and he quickly amassed a following. And he gained, uh, he gained some like highly charismatic speakers, um, preachers, um, whole people groups that, you know, fell for this thing that this guy's putting out there in terms of what it means to receive blessings and how we go about doing that and our role in that. So um, introduced in the 50s, by the 60s, he had a big following, highly influential people within the Christian community, um, preachers, and whole people groups that um, quickly latched on to what it is that he was putting out there. Uh, there's even huge television networks that still exist today that are a platform and, and a breeding ground for this type of thinking, this prosperity teaching, this false gospel. Uh, and it, again, continues to nefariously work its way into uh, Christianity, into, uh, the, into people's lives. Um, so, as I said, it's... it's it's really rooted here in America, and it, it's given a place to thrive in America for, for several different reasons, which I'm about to talk about, but um, it's, it's worldwide. It's worldwide. Uh, and it's, it's, it's to a huge detriment. Uh, promises of health and wealth and prosperity to people, for example, in war-torn, disease-filled, uh, starving countries, um, drug-filled countries, um, these types of places, uh, it, leaves, it, it leaves these people hopeless. And so it's to the detriment that it's gone worldwide because it's gone to places like this. You know, we have a cush life in America, but it ain't like that everywhere else. And when this kind of teaching goes outside and goes to places um, like that, war-torn, starving, hungry, disease, like all these things, uh, it's to a huge detriment because these people are left hopeless because, um, spoiler alert, it doesn't, it doesn't pan out the way that it's, it's presented to them. You know, we can't trigger, we can't manifest our own destiny like a prosperity teacher would have you think. And so it leaves, it leaves the world with a very tainted and um, bitter view towards Christianity because this is the Christianity that they've been presented. That if you just do this, if you can speak your your desires into existence, God wants this for you, so on and so forth, it leaves them with nothing. Because the real truth is not presented to them. The the unpopular truth is not presented to them, as we talked about last week. This is why I said keep in mind um, the contrast um, last week versus this week, because they're the two the two things, the prosperity and the suffering they can't coexist. And so when it's, when it's being put out there, it's leaving people, it's leaving people with nothing because it's, it's, not, it's not coming true to them. Spoiler alert. Um, but it's thrived here in America um, for opposite reasons. It appeals to the American dream, to be healthy and wealthy and financially secure and to pursue happiness. We each get to chase our, our own subjective, subjective goals for what that means. Prosperity teaching enables it, and it's God's plan for you even. This is what the, the prosperity teacher would, would say to you, that it's God's plan for you, and, and you deserve it even. Um, again, that's not what Scripture talks about. Scripture talks about what we do deserve, and it ain't, it ain't material wealth, and it ain't 
success beyond measure. You know, we deserve hell. Christ frees us from that. But what we actually deserve is not what the prosperity teacher puts out there. And we've talked about these material things, uh, wealth becoming an idol, and the prosperity teaching uh, of, of wealth and the pursuit of wealth and the pursuit of material success and, and so on and so forth completely supplants because it, it, it completely supplants our desire for God. It becomes the idol, and we've talked about that earlier in the year. We seek it rather than him. <clears throat> it appeals to our culture here in America. Last week I mentioned the, the sort of bootstraps metaphor, um, if you remember, those type of people and that type of philosophy. Optimism and individualism and personal responsibility and a positive attitude and so on and so forth. These overemphasized traits are lifted up and glorified in people, creating an utterly skewed view of human nature and of human need. You know, what man suffers with and what man needs to free him from that, which is Christ. So this bootstrap sort of thinking that is, exists within prosperity teaching distorts the view of man and distorts the need for Christ and makes it um, irrelevant. And so it's really dangerous, and it's, it's, so, it's so there, but people can't see it. Prosperity theology teaches that we are innately good, and we are, we are all like little gods, even. Able to bend circumstances to our own will and desire with our words and our thinkings and our beliefs, rather than submit to God the Father. So prosperity teaching says it's what you want, not what he wants. Um, so it's completely reversed there as well. Um, capitalism itself, so again, here in America, capitalism itself is another massive enabler for this false teaching to breathe and grow. And as one writer puts it, when you live in a country where upward mobility is possible and there is a thriving economic system, having God on your side and blessing the economic system is an added bonus. You just need to have enough faith and divine blessings will flow from God. So it, through, through capitalism and the systems we have here, like it's able to, to grow and manifest because that's kind of what capitalism teaches is, is grab it for yourself, you know? That's the, that's the philosophy of capitalism and it has its positives and negatives. And of course we've talked about culture's uh, influence and in, in redefining uh, truths in the lives of believers. And we want to view success in terms of status and in terms of uh, wealth or position or, or man's respect even, rather than um, understanding success as you know, holiness and righteousness and faithfulness and uh, obedience and submission to God. So it's, it's, it's in rebellion against God in those, in those manners as well. You know, I'm not sitting here uh, nitpicking America and trying to bash it or like be an ungrateful American or something. I am. But I'm highlighting that basically where man has freedom and liberty to move and operate, man has absolute ability, ability to sin greatly. And so that's, that's why it really can thrive here in America because of certain freedoms and liberties and systems we have in place. You know, Adam had near total freedom, near total freedom in the Garden of Eden, barring one, one rule he was given, but he had near total freedom from what we can see in scripture. And look at what he did with it, you know, where it got him. So 
it's just interesting to, to look at how it's taken such root here um, because of where we're at as a, as a society and as a country and what we allow and what we um, perpetuate in our, you know, our, our culture and in our um, economic systems and, and things of that nature. So it has strong roots here even still today. That's my point. <coughs> I, alluded to it, I alluded to it a couple minutes ago, um, but what are some of these faulty doctrines that are you know, pushed? So I have a few for you guys to share with you guys today. You know, what is the basis for their misread, misinterpreted, eisegeted source of their new thought? You know, how are they taking what we have in scripture out of context to support um, their false claims? So I have a few. The first is, um, they cite that the Abrahamic covenant is a reason and justification to amass material wealth. So the Abrahamic covenant, what God set up with Abraham, he would you know, receive descendants as numerous as the stars and so on and so forth found in um, the book of Genesis in like, uh, you know, 15 through like 23 or something like that, 25. Uh, it's cited by many as being the foundational reason to gain wealth even. And as the one writer puts it again, it's good that prosperity the theologians recognize much of scripture is the record of the fulfillment of the Abrahamic covenant. But... It's bad that they don't maintain an orthodox view of this covenant. They incorrectly view the inception of the covenant, and more significantly, they erroneously view the application of it. A prominent prosperity teacher says that Christians, this is a direct quote, Christians are Abraham's spiritual children, children and heirs to the blessings of faith. This Abrahamic inheritance is unpacked primarily in terms of material entitlements for us today. And another guy, prosperity teacher, direct quote, God's covenant has been established and prosperity is a provision of this covenant. You need to realize that prosperity belongs to you now. They incorrectly cite, for example, Galatians chapter 3 to support their claim. So let's read for ourselves what Galatians 3 says. They cite Galatians 3.14. Through Christ Jesus, God has blessed the Gentiles with the same blessing he promised to Abraham. And then they stop there. And that's, this, is, this is a foundational uh, scripture that they source in, in their doctrines and what they, what they put out there. They stop there. They don't even read the whole sentence. They don't even read the whole verse. That's not even the whole of verse 14. It goes on to say, So that we who are believers might receive the promised Holy Spirit through faith. The context of the scripture here in Galatians is Paul talking about the inability of the law to make us right with God and because man is completely of, incapable of ever fulfilling it. The law only highlights what we can't do. Christ is the only one who can and did fulfill the law so through faith in Christ is the way in which we are gathered into Abraham's blessing. And it has nothing to do with physical anything. It's holy primarily spiritual. It has to do with how we are made right with God and how because of Christ, our faith in only his good and complete work, are we then able to receive our spiritual inheritance as God's people. It has nothing to do with physical anything. They take a shallow, out-of-context understanding of scripture and create a whole system of beliefs off of it. 
and amass a whole following of people by the tens of thousands. Probably more. I haven't even done numbers on people that, you know, believe what they would teach. Paul's reminding the Galatians of, again, the spiritual blessing of salvation, not the material blessing of wealth, which is what the prosperity teacher wants you to think. Secondly, they have a false understanding of Jesus' atonement, what he did through his work on the cross. Teachers of the gospel, prosperity gospel, and I say that, um, you know, sort of cringy, because I don't like saying it, because it's false gospel. Um, but anyways, teachers of this prosperity movement try to shove it in that through Christ's sacrifice, we are now provided physical healing and financial prosperity. Influential people still today even, even talk about this. It's, again, it's part, of their main, it's part of their main doctrine. It's part of their main teaching. They suggest that God didn't just put to death sin and sorrow and grief and, and, and death. Uh, he, that he didn't just put those things on Christ, but he also put our poverty on Christ's cross. How they come to this conclusion, it's, it's baffling because it's a complete disregard for the rest of scripture. You know, everything else that Christ teach, everything that his disciples teach, everything that Paul talks about. And so it's sort of baffling that they, they can get people to believe that because it's not in there. It's not in God's word. They have a disregard for things we talked about earlier in the year. In the book of Acts, how the early church operated. They have a complete disregard for Christ's words himself. Uh, he says, I tell you the truth. This is in Matthew 19. He talks to this, this rich man, right, about what he needs to do to enter the kingdom of heaven. And this rich man walks away from this discussion dejected because what, what Jesus says to him is that he has to get, do away with what he has now, his material possessions and wealth. And this guy walks away dejected because he don't want to do that. Christ says it's easier for a person to enter the kingdom of heaven. Uh, sorry, I'll, I'll back up. I tell you the truth, it's very hard for a rich person to enter the kingdom of heaven. And I'll say it again. It's easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of heaven. The, the, what he's saying is exactly what I said, that it has nothing to do with the material amassing of wealth. And in fact, that is a temptation. That's an idol. And so we have to get rid of it. And it's easier for a poor man to enter the kingdom of heaven than this rich man that approached him. And this guy walks away dejected from that conversation because of his inability, inability and unwillingness to do so. They cite 2 Corinthians chapter 8 um, in an eisegeted and misinterpreted way, when Paul says this, you know the generous grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor, so that by his poverty he could make you rich. There it is, it's right there in scripture, so that he can make us rich. And that's what they say. And they say it in a convincing way, they're good orators, and they, they you know, they, they prey on the emotional response of people, and the place, the circumstances of people's lives, you know. They, they talk to people that maybe are struggling, um, that don't have much, but, says, but they spin it. They spin God's words and they, they misappropriate his, his truths to fit their circumstances. It says, if you just do this, you know, God wants it. It's his will for you. You can demand it even. You deserve it. 
You're justified in those things, in demanding it. <coughs> Again, you have to be a pretty shallow reader to draw that as truth, draw that out of, out of the text as, as what it's saying. He's literally saying the exact opposite in this particular passage in, in 2 Corinthians. He's teaching the Corinthians that since Christ accomplished so much for them through his atonement that they should empty themselves of their riches in service to him, in service to the Savior. And this is why in just a few verses later, in the same chapter, in the same discussion that Paul's talking about, he says, right now you have plenty and can help those who are in need, and later you will have plenty and can share with those and others will have plenty and can share with you when you need it. And in this way, things will be equal. And as the scripture says, those who gathered a lot had nothing left over, and those who gathered only a little had enough. Literally, the whole of 2 Corinthians chapter 8 and chapter 9 is about taking care of other people, not amassing wealth for yourself. So how they can, how they can draw that out of the text, it's crazy. But they do. And again, they convince thousands of it. Colin will inevitably, maybe, I don't know, I don't know where he goes with it, next month be talking about this scripture, maybe, because it is wholly about giving. Uh, we've sort of dabbled in it already maybe a couple times this year. Colin's month next month is how to give blessing, or what it means to give blessing, I think. So, maybe a little spoiler alert in terms of that text. <clears throat> they teach that Christians should give in order to receive. Strings are attached. You know, they play a, a kind of financial contract theory with God, even. Robert Tilton dubbed this doctrine the law of compensation. And according to this law, which he somehow bases out of Mark chapter 10, verse 30, Christians should give generously to others because when they do, God gives it back more in return. And that this, in turn, leads to a perpetual cycle of prosperity. So they treat it as if it's a, a trigger, you know, if they do this, then this. It's a, like I said, it's a, they think it's this financial, financial contract theory they have with God. That because this, then this, which is the opposite of what, of what we are taught. If only we had a guy that can speak to that, you know? A guy that speaks about how we should give and with what expectation. We do. And we are told in scripture that we should give with hope of nothing in return. We give freely and joyously, and this is all over the New Testament. Jesus taught his disciples to give, hoping for nothing in return, but prosperity theologians teach their disciples to give because of what they will get in return, and what they will get is great in return. They teach that faith is self-manifested, a self-manifested force that leads to more prosperity. Again, I'll pull direct quotes from the teachers themselves. One says this, faith is a spiritual force, a spiritual energy, a spiritual power. It's this force of faith which makes the laws of the spirit world function. There are certain laws governing prosperity revealed in God's word, and faith causes them to function. According to their teaching, faith is not, you know, a God-granted, God-centered act of his own will. It's a spiritual force shaped by man and directed at God, almost like a threat. It's a it's a, it's a threat toward God. Their faith is a threat toward God. Because of this, you better give me this. And they use prayer in the same way, a tool or a weapon to be used against God. And they misappropriate James, for example. 
in chapter 4. He says, yet you don't have what you want because you don't ask God for it. Again, a shallow reading of the text that didn't even finish the whole sentence. <clears throat> a direct quote from a, uh, a prosperity teacher once again. When we pray, believing that we have already received what we are praying, God has no choice but to make, us, make our prayers come to pass. It is a key to getting results as a Christian. Once again, if, if like you have red flags popping up, good. Good on you. The prosperity gospel's overemphasis on man turns prayer into a tool or a weapon, as I said, that believers think they can use to force God to grant their desires. And within this teaching, man, not God, becomes the focus of, of, of prayer, the focal point. And as I said, interestingly, and once again, they haven't even finished out the verse they, that, they, that they cite. Because literally the, uh, the, the next part of that same chapter in James says, even when you ask, you don't get because your motives are all wrong. You want only what will give you pleasure. But they take it out of context and they run with it. They speak in a way and they prey on your emotions. There's nothing wrong with submitting to, to God requests that we have. There's nothing wrong with that. But taken to the links that they would suggest you take them to, it turns our prayer and relationship with God uh, as shallow and like wholly selfish. We're not looking for God's will anymore. We're looking to manifest our own um, desires and pleasures and seek our own will. And coupled with that, that, that faith weapon that they think they have, their views on prayer turn God into uh, a sort of, I'm going to borrow a term from someone else here, a cosmic concierge. I like it. I like it for its alliteration and imagery. To borrow the term from someone else, it turns God into a cosmic bellhop who is at our beck and call, which is a far cry from how we're called to be in scripture when we are in submission to his will and when we pray that his will be done. This is the reverse of what the prosperity teacher would have you believe. So, these are just a few of these, these doctrines which they cite. Despite the very scriptures that they cite, these people, these false teachers, and misguided believers, more importantly, think they are grounded in God's word. The prosperity gospel is flawed at its core, though, because it's a complete eisegesis of God's word. It's a complete misinterpretation. It's a spinning, on the, it's a spinning of his words and a preying on the emotions of people and their circumstances. And everything true about who God is and who we are is thrown into the wind according to this counterfeit faith. It's the complete reverse of what we know to be true and what we're told to expect. Again, contrasting with what we were talking about last week in suffering. If the prosperity gospel is true, then grace becomes obsolete, and God is irrelevant, and man is the measure and center of all things. Through, through, this, through this false teaching, our relationship with God becomes quid pro quo and on demand. And it should go without saying, but to be utterly clear, this teaching is untrue, unbiblical, and evil. And I say that because I've heard people in this very church reference these, these ideologies and things that are, are taught within this, this false teaching. It is untrue, unfounded in scripture, and it's evil because of what it does to people and the, and the Christianity it presents, the Christ it presents, the God it presents. 
if man is the sinner capable of manifesting his own desired reality and pleasures and so on, then what does blessing even mean anymore? That's the question I would ask. If man is the center, able to do all that, then what does blessing even mean? It's not based on a God who is above all and is all. If God is irrelevant, then what weight does living eternally in his presence as our ultimate blessing even mean anymore? Because what we do here and now is all that matters, and we can manifest that, and we can use this God to, to, to enable that in us. Again, we explored that concept last week of suffering as central to our lives as disciples. And we hit that first because that's the truth that what we can expect, and we should accept those things, accept those things, expect those things both in a certain way, and even to view them as a blessing from God uh, and what it means in our lives. But as I said at the top here, it's nearly impossible to explore this conversation. You know, there's countless books written about it when we're talking about what it means to receive blessing and we're trying to understand what that means. It's nearly impossible to avoid it and it's still relevant today. They're still making movies about it. People still have a platform on television networks to talk about it and they still have thousands of people in their, in their influence that believe what they have to say. So it is relevant and, it's, and, it's, and it, it continues to thrive and pre present uh, a, a false gospel, a false Christianity, and a hopeless Christianity. So we need to be on guard, watching out for this, this just manifestation of evil, because that's what it is, uh, in everything that we do, and what we input, and what we believe, and who we listen to, and how we are influenced. We need to keep our emotions checked. We need to um, keep in mind our circumstances, um, and you know, put them in the context of suffering, if that's what we need to do. Um, but be on guard because it's a, it's a pervasive thought that still exists. So my question's for you this week. Um, next week we're going to talk about, this is my last week, next week. Next week we're going to be, I'm going to try to segue us out and tie receiving to giving because they are intrinsically tied. And as I said, Colin's month next week, or next month will be about what it means to, to give. So that's what next week will look like. But my question's for you guys this week. Where have you seen this way of thinking pop up? Where have you seen this way of thinking pop up? Is the conversation making you think of a particular time, a place, a person, an input that you uh, received? In what ways do you see the culture leaning into this flawed perspective and this false gospel that's presented? You know, in what ways have you seen it take roots and be the truth for people and the narrative for people, for example? And are you guilty yourself of falling into this, into these trappings, into some of these trappings? Maybe not all of them, but some of these trappings. Are you a bootstraps type of person? And, and how, do you, how are you keeping that in check as it relates to what we're talking about today? Uh, have you been led... Are you guilty? Yeah. Have, are you guilty of falling in? Are, have you been led astray? Are you keeping God centrally in every aspect of your life, including blessing? Or do you remove God and place yourself at the center, like this prosperity teaching does? Whose will do you submit to? And then lastly, and plainly, and simply, how are you keeping grounded in biblical truth? Because this teaching is not. 
let's talk about these things this week, and we'll gather for my last week next week. So thank you for being here.